Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. So we talked a bit before our last episode about how, you know, we kind of run into the issue of not having access to great resources to cover cases that involve people of color or underrepresented communities. So I really kept that in mind as I chose this case, but there are also a couple of other reasons why I wanted to do this particular episode. So this story takes place in Juarez, which I grew up right across the border in El Paso. And I actually lived about 45 minutes away from this crime. And while this was happening, I was still living in El Paso. And I was a teenager at the time. A lot of the people we're going to talk about were teenagers at the time. And, you know, I do want to say that having grown up in El Paso, I did not realize that I picked up a bit of an accent when I say Hispanic names. So as we come across um, pronunciations in this episode, you know, don't judge me because I am rusty, but (laughs) I will try my best to pronounce the names as I know that they would be pronounced in Juarez. And, you know, this episode was also a bit challenging because the book that I used as my main source, the crime itself is kind of one part of the whole book. So the book goes into a lot of political and police corruption, and it talks about cartels quite a bit. So I kind of, I do encourage anybody who's interested in learning about the cartels in Mexico and the violence in Juarez to read the book because it was very good. But the case that we're going to talk about is kind of a small part of that. So I just wanted our listeners to be aware of that. And the main source for this episode is a book called The Story of the Sente Who Murdered His Mother, His Father, and His Sister, Life and Death in Juarez by Sandra Rodriguez Nieto. She's actually a journalist who covered this crime in real time and wrote for the paper with her uh, coworkers about this crime. And I always feel like that makes for a really good book when it's a journalist who was sort of on the scene while it was unfolding. Yes. Like she was going, she interviewed a lot of people involved in this case, you know, in prison. She talked to families. She was really a very vital part of covering this case. At 3 a.m. in May 2004, a Ford Explorer with no plates wrapped itself around a tree and then caught fire in the outskirts of Ciudad Juarez. There was actually also a Jeep Cherokee nearby, and once the Explorer caught on fire, it fled from the scene. Now, the Jeep belonged to Ricardo Escobar, the brother of Abeldaro Escobar, a member of Mexico's National Action Party. And he'd actually been named the Secretary of Agrarian Reform under the President Felipe Calderon. The burning car was reported when a police officer on the Zaragoza International Bridge saw it and thought he saw a bushfire. 
Now, for context, four months before, 12 bodies had been found at a housing development in Juarez, and the police had been accused of working for the Carrillo Fuentes Cartel, which is also known as the Juarez Cartel. Now, the police were not charged, but many fights and unrest toward the police was very prevalent at this time. And actually, in the previous week, four people had been found murdered cartel style, which is where you get murdered with a close range kill shot where the victim has somehow been immobilized or left with nowhere to go. So things are pretty tense at this point. And so the police officer is seeing this fire and he's like, I think it's a bushfire, but I don't know. I'm going to be really careful. Mm -hmm. So a fireman at the scene said that when he peered into the burnt up Explorer, he saw the most shocking thing he had seen in his six years of fighting fires. There were three victims in the car that were completely ravaged by flames and were missing limbs. And he noticed that one body was significantly smaller than the other two. Several hours earlier, three teenagers were driving along an unpaved road in a cherry red Dodge Intrepid. And just a side note, a Dodge Intrepid was my first car. So this, this case has a lot of connections to me in a weird way. It's very interesting. So the three teenagers in the car were 16-year-old Vicente Leon Chavez, a high school student in Juarez. The driver was 17-year-old Eduardo, an El Paso native, who was Vicente's good friend. And in the back seat was 18-year-old Uziel Guerrero. Vicente had a 38 caliber pistol in his pants, and he told Eduardo, quote, it has to be today. Now, Vicente spoke to his friends in a very demanding tone. He would give them orders and often kind of degrade them, say that he was smarter than them, and that's why they needed to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And they seemed to follow along yeah, pretty much with whatever he said. He was definitely the leader of the friend group. Even though he was the youngest, it's very interesting. Yes, but you know... Some people are just very charismatic and kind of step naturally into that role. And I think that that was the case here. He also drank smoke pot and dabbled in mushrooms and ecstasy. Now, Vicente and Eduardo had been planning to go get a gun and would hang out in dangerous neighborhoods and ask people where they could get one. And Uziel had not been aware of what his friends were planning until that day. He actually had a date that night, and he said that he could only go along if he was done before his date because he didn't want to miss it. Now, at 11 p.m., Eduardo parked in front of Vicente's house, 5824 Rosita Road. The house had a small sign out front saying, God bless our home. And Vicente stood at the door and said, maybe we should wait. I only have one bullet, which was not true. But he was basically just trying to buy time because he wanted to think of a way that he could get Eduardo or Uziel to pull the trigger for him. And Uziel was feeling like Vicente had gone too far. Again, he's kind of the leader of this operation, but there does come a point where you just say enough is enough. And this was kind of that point for him. He's getting to be very uncomfortable. And he knew what Vicente was capable of. But Vicente, again, is just kind of the leader, right? He's the spearheader. He told them that they were going to do a coin flip to find out who would pull the trigger. And he said to them, remember about the $200,000 ransom? Everyone is going to think this was a narco job. And that was really his belief. He thought 
with all of this yep. chaotic unrest and all of these deaths and yeah. executions and drug cartel stuff going on, he just really felt like this was going to fly completely under the radar. Right. But Uziel said, they're your parents. They're your problem. You shoot. <laughs> Now, Vicente had a very strained family relationship. His father would yell, curse at him, and punish him. And he really resented his father for this and also had a lot of resentment toward his mother for not coming to his defense. And he had an extremely tense relationship with his 13-year-old sister, Laura Yvette. Now, Laura was calm, smart, quiet, and well-liked. But unaware to everyone else, she would antagonize Vicente and brag about things, which I feel like is pretty pretty common normal. for a younger sister. Exactly. But it really got under his skin. Yeah. And the only family member Vicente actually liked was his three-year-old brother, who will just identify by his initial CE. Now, no one aside from Eduardo and Uziel would know that for a long time. The only thing Vicente would think or talk about was killing his family. So this conversation that we're talking about here is the culmination of a lot of months of stewing and planning and putting this into the works. You know, it starts one way where you're just, you know, oh, I hate them. I want to kill them. Yes. And then it just kind of grows and grows and grows and grows. And that's what happened here. Yes. So, you know, at this point, the boys go into the house, which was larger than the average home for this part of Juarez. Now, Vicente's father was named Vicente Leon Negrete, and he was 40. And his mother was Alma Delia Chavez Marquez, and she was 36. They were in their bedroom watching TV. So the boys went into Vicente's room where they kind of passed around the gun. And then, you know, they started talking about their school field trip that was the next day. And I feel like that detail is heartbreaking. They're preparing for a very violent act and they're still talking about a special day at school the following day. Like they're they're children, you know? And this is something that we see a lot in these cases where children do commit these heinous crimes. It's not excusable. No. They're definitely responsible for their actions at this point. Yeah. But... They're still kids and they yeah. they don't look at the big picture no. and these big ramifications yep. and they have these expectations that are just mind-boggling. I think the psychology is something that's very fascinating Oh, it to me. really is. It really is. So Vicente walked into the kitchen and returned with a knife and he gave it to Eduardo and said, quote, just in case. And he was kind of reminding his friends how much new stuff they could get with all the ransom money and that once his parents were asleep, they could just kill them with ease. And Alma actually heard the boys and called out to Vicente. So Vicente opened the bedroom door where Alma and Vicente Sr. were. And Uziel had the gun and he closed his eyes and shot twice into the master bedroom. Like he didn't even, his eyes weren't even open. So one bullet actually hit Vicente Leon Negrete and punctured his lung. And he bled to death while Alma was screaming. So Eduardo actually walks into their bedroom to see the scene. And Vicente nudges him forward. And Alma asks Vicente, why are you shooting at us? And he looks at her and replies, quote, it wasn't me. 
And Eduardo goes up to Alma, who is screaming, why, why, over and over, to which Eduardo replies, quote, I wish I knew, ma'am. Ask your son. And then Eduardo proceeded to stab her 12 times. At this point, Laura Yvette woke up and asked what was going on. Vicente stabbed her nine times and she quickly died. So the three boys then started to wrap the bodies up in sheets and put them in the Ford Explorer that one of Vicente Sr.'s clients had left at the house. And Vicente started frantically cleaning the house. And Uziel asks, what will we do with the bodies? And Vicente said they were going to have to burn them. So they start discussing the possibilities. How are we going to make this happen? And they talked about an empty field. And he gives them the keys to the Jeep and tells them to follow him in the Explorer. He didn't even have a plan for after, you know? Like they, yeah. like you said, like they're not thinking about the big picture. But they're not even thinking about 10 minutes from now after the crime. Right. Like, what are we going to do after? Like, what do we do with the it's bodies? Very- impulsive although it, although it, it was, planned. was planned yeah it's weird it it's is. weird the execution is impulsive so they go out to the empty field and Vicente pours a gallon of gasoline all over the car and bodies and Uziel used a lighter to ignite it and then they made their way back to Vicente's house they cleaned cleaned everything up they flipped all the mattresses put on clean sheets and Vicente went to his little brother C.E. Uziel asks, what are you going to do about your brother? And Vicente says, I'll get him out of Juarez and take him to a ranch. Again, like, the idea of taking your little brother to a ranch somewhere is great, but this is not the way to do that. (laughs) No. Vicente finished cleaning the house around 6 a.m. and then he cuddled his baby brother and fell asleep on his parents' bed. Now, we do talk about this case, and we, we've been talking about it, kind of trying to wrap our minds around it, but we we need to give a little bit of background. Vicente had grown up near a lot of cartel violence, and violence was kind of all around him. He was desensitized to it yep. to a degree. Between 1993 and 1997, there was an increase of annual homicides from 55 to 250, and that's just what's reported, and we... Right. All know there's unreported cases here. Yes. Many people in Juarez at the time were aware of the violence, but it also was not first in their minds for several reasons. Juarez was experiencing a financial boom and population growth. American tourists were coming across the border for the vivid nightlife and the cheaper drinks and entertainment. And honestly, you do just become desensitized. Yes. When it just becomes a part of life. Yeah. Which is so sad. And between 1993 and 1997, 150 women had been murdered and discarded on the streets of Juarez. And this had led to the recently coined term femicide. And again, this is just what Vicente grew up knowing. Right. These are his formative years, you know? Yes. And, you know, that's very different than sometimes we get into these debates about what leads to violence in teenagers. And we talk about video games and we talk about exposure to violent television and things like that. Right. That is all one thing, but that's all, that's all media and it's all pretend, but this is, this is happening around him as a child in real time in his neighborhood in neighborhoods that his friends live in. You know, it's like very real 
to him and to his friends. This is their experience. Yes. Not that it excuses. Not at all. They're completely responsible, but... It gives you some context. Yeah. To me, it is somewhat of an explanation as to why they formed this violent of a plan. Yes. Because I don't think that this would be in every child's mind. It's a different situation than what most of us grew up in. Yes. In 1997, Amado Carrillo had taken over the Juarez cartel and he had an air fleet that would shuttle drugs from Colombia, earning him the title, the Lord of the Skies. And for a long time, the cartel was under protection from the government because the profits of the drugs would get turned back into the community. Yeah. So they're just, you know, it's violence, it's corruption, it's drugs. And then you're seeing parts of your city actually flourish and it's easy to kind of not want to think about where that money is coming from, not want to think about where that prosperity is coming from because it's so violent and horrible. Exactly. And to see many people that are not even necessarily involved at all, (laughs) involved or concerned, you know, that people are are kind of happy with certain situations and certain aspects of the situation. Yep. Now, in the second half of 1997, Amada Cario died during a plastic surgery operation in Mexico City, and the citizens of Juarez witnessed, again, a big rise in homicides, mm-hmm. and public shootouts became common. And again, this is where they're growing up. Yeah, and this is the 90s. This is the 90s, and there's public shootouts. Like, this is not yeah. 1800s. This is, like, no. very recent. And this was described as the, quote, settling of debt. And Amado's brother, Vicente Carrillo, stood as an inheritor of the cartel. Yeah. And so it was just... A lot of turmoil. A lot. A lot of turmoil. A lot of violence. Very dangerous. Doesn't excuse anything. No. But it is just a situation where you become desensitized. This becomes the norm. Yeah. It's easy to understand why... Vicente's mind would go to violence as the answer. Of course, he made the decision to act on that. Yes. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. At 10 a.m. the next day, Vicente was awoken to persistent honking outside. Now, Eduardo and Uziel were in the Cherokee waiting for Vicente to give them a phone card to make the ransom call to his mother's family. So his whole plan was to try and get money from his mother's family for a ransom because they, that's what they would say. Like a lot of the criminals would say, oh, we've kidnapped your family. We want this amount of money, even though the family members were already dead. This was happening quite a bit. So his whole plan was to not even get money from random people, like from his grandparents. Like his, these are his family members. So Eduardo and Uziel, you know, later they stated that Vicente was a difficult friend to have, but they admired his devil may care attitude. You know, they liked the fact that he didn't really think about too many steps ahead of what was happening. They enjoyed the fact that he lived in the moment. And it is nice to have friends who, you know, inspire you to be spontaneous. But when I say that, I don't mean 
in a violent way, right? Right. Like, like it's nice to spontaneously be like, let's go to Six Flags. Yes. Not spontaneously yes. be like, let's, let's murder kill my, my family. Yeah, exactly. Now, Vicente, you know, kind of got C's, C average in school, but he tested among the top students on every standardized test. And when asked what he would save from his house if it was on fire, he actually told his school counselor that he would save his CD player and his CDs, as opposed to saving his family or anything like that. Now, his family, the Leon Chavez family, was actually quite privileged because both of his parents were educated. And like I said, their home was more spacious than the average homes in their area. And their children were enrolled in school. This was something that tens of thousands of children in Juarez would never get the chance to do due to overfilled classrooms and lack of teachers. Criminologists would later say that Vicente's criminal tendencies were not due to emotional shortcomings or problems with his family, but that they were triggered by the environment of the violent city around him. So they're saying, you know, it's not that he had an abusive childhood. It's not that his home life was horrible. It's because of what was happening around him that inspired this level of violence in his mind. And, you know, this plan to kill his parents had actually started out several weeks earlier when Vicente had approached Eduardo about an opportunity to make a lot of money. And Eduardo thought that the idea was going to be smuggling drugs. But Vicente said, no, I'm going to kidnap my parents for a ransom. And Eduardo at first thought he was joking. And they didn't talk about it for several days after that. But then once it was mentioned again, it was all they could talk about for two weeks. And Vicente actually had obtained a gun on May 19th from a classmate claiming that he was going to use it on, quote, some chumps who had beat up his cousin. And Vicente described his plan to Eduardo and Uziel and told them that it was going to look like a narco crime and that no one would ever suspect him. He told them that he only needed their help to drag the bodies out and to be the liaison with his grandmother for the ransom. Now, on the morning of the 24th, when Vicente left the house, he actually saw one of his dad's employees from the car repair shop where he worked. And he asked Vicente, hey, like, where's your dad? And he said, oh, I don't know. Eduardo and Uziel volunteered to actually go see if the Ford Explorer was still there at the scene where they had burned it. And they returned and reported that it wasn't there, but that the crime scene tape had been put up. So they bought a newspaper and looked to see if the story was already in the newspaper, but it wasn't. Now, in 2004, there were already 23 unsolved executions at this point. And it became more and more clear that when the police were not the ones committing the crimes, they were simply not investigating cases that were solvable. You know, lots of clues would be left behind, but nobody was even working the cases. They're just completely falling by the wayside. And the fact that so many crimes were unsolved and unnoticed only bolstered Vicente's idea that he would never be considered as a suspect. This was never going to be taken seriously. It was either just going to be, oh, this is a narco crime or... Or it happened and that's it and we're moving on. Exactly. Eduardo and Uziel left, and Vicente packed up his brother, C.E., and went to his grandparents' house. And when he arrived, he said loudly, my parents went to the movies last night and never came home. Now, Vicente had his dad's cell phone. Yep. Which I feel like was poor planning. Yeah, don't, don't, do, don't do that. 
And it started ringing as he was explaining this to his uncle. And his uncle answered it. And the voice on the phone said, we have Vicente Leon and Alma Chavez kidnapped. We want $200,000 for the ransom. And again, I just, I feel like there was a better way to execute this than having the phone. Yes. But, you know. Yes. Vicente's grandparents felt like something wasn't adding up. I wonder why. Yep. But they told him they were going to call the rest of the family and let them know that Vicente Singer and Alma were missing. And that evening, some friends asked Eduardo and Uziel about Vicente because they had seen him earlier, quote, surrounded by people. And they got him on the phone and Vicente said that he had been caught. And Eduardo and Uziel picked up Eduardo's crush and another girl who will be referred to just by the initial S for this story for hamburgers and drinks. And they go out. And again, I do feel like we see this yes. kind of behavior in these cases again where yes. they just can't keep this to themselves. No. This reminded me so much of Bobby Kent's episode. Like, yes, a lot. That's what I was going to say. It reminds me a lot of Bobby Kent. This guilty confession. Yes. And Eduardo gets drunk and starts confessing half-truths to S. And he said that they had shot some thugs, but weren't sure if they were alive or not. So at this point, Agent Torres, who is actually like someone who was really working, doing their job here in Juarez, he was at the home and he was looking at the crime scene and he was looking at the bodies and he noticed that all of the knife wounds, you know, were looking pretty frantic. And he found the remains of what looked like a bed sheet. And in Vicente Sr.'s pocket, he actually found his license, which had his address on it. So clues were being left everywhere. And Agent Torres sent the team to the house to begin looking for more evidence. And at the home, they found bloodstains in the garage, muddy tire prints, boys' school uniforms, just really so much evidence. And while at the home, Torres received the call that a family had just reported a mother and father missing. So at this point, he is starting to connect these dots. Now, Vicente's grandparents and cousins told him that they were going to go to the police. And the homicide unit investigator asked Vicente a few questions like, doesn't it seem odd that your parents would go to the movies with your young sister that late on a school night? And very quickly, he broke down and confessed. He said, fine, I can't take it anymore. Me and my friends, we killed them, my parents and my sister. Like, it did not take much. It, it took, like, two questions for him to confess because he's 16 years old. Like, yes. <laughs> now, reporter Armando Rodriguez worked the crime beat for El Diario, the newspaper. And by 3 p.m., he already knew the names and address of the burn victims and also that their son was being detained as the prime suspect. Now, Armando stated in his first article on the case that the teens had tried to pin it on narco crime, and this version of events only lasted a few days. And by May 23rd, two days later, it was reported that Vicente said that he had murdered his sister because his parents favored her, and that he killed his parents because he hated them. Now, this was obviously very shocking yeah. to the surviving family. And Vicente's maternal grandmother said they had no idea how this happened. Yeah. They seemed just like a normal family before this. 
and his paternal side of the family actually came to Juarez still thinking they had died in an accident. And they didn't really learn the truth until they got there. I feel so bad for Vicente's extended family because... Absolutely. You know, they didn't live far away from his maternal family and they saw them all the time. So they they had this idea of their family being, you know, pretty normal. And it was a pretty normal family. And then his father's side of the family, you know, they lived in Mexico City. And so they, you didn't get to see them as often. And I cannot imagine thinking that someone in my family had died in an accident only come to find out that my grandchild or nephew is the one who murdered. Like, I cannot imagine that. No, I cannot. not at all. Now, Eduardo was the first of the boys to be put in a juvenile detention center that they referred to as, quote, the school. Uh, his parents had proven that he was a minor and therefore he was tried as a juvenile and he received a five-year sentence. And at the school, again, the juvenile detention center, on Monday, while talking to social services, Eduardo talked about how Vicente had told them that they had no chance of getting caught. And he said that Vicente was very much this manipulator and he just didn't know how to push him away. He was drawn to him. Again, Again this reminds very me of Bobby Kent vibes. Yes, Marty Puccio sure. and Bobby Kent vibes right here. Yes. Absolutely. Now, Eduardo, he said that if someone had given him a little push in the right direction saying not to be involved in it, he wouldn't have. But they were the only ones that knew about it and he was I only know. spending a lot of time with Vicente he actually broke down in tears while talking about this, saying how he wished his actions had not affected his family. He missed his little brother the most, and he hoped that his brother would still acknowledge him as family when he got out. And that part, like <sighs> when he's just crying and he's saying, like, I don't want my little brother to not claim me as a brother when I get out in five years like that. Oh, it's just it's so sad for everyone. There's like. A lot of feelings there because it was very clear that Eduardo was feeling a lot of not just guilt, but also remorse. Yes. I do think that he was remorseful of his actions. At the same time, you did make this decision he stabbed to be involved. Alma 12 times. Exactly. Like, this oh. heinous, heinous crime. And to be involved heavily to the yes. point where he's actually yes. stabbing. It's not like he was just there. Right. And he wasn't just watching. Yeah. Not that that would be okay either, but. No. So the author of the book that we used as our main source actually went to interview Vicente in prison. At this point, he was being detained in the adult prison because no one had verified his age with a birth certificate because obviously his family is feeling a lot of things and rushing to help him get a cushier place to be is probably not on their number one like list of priorities. Now, the particular prison that he was being held at was actually occupied by about 4,000 prisoners, although it only had the capacity for 2,000 prisoners. Hmm. So double the capacity and conditions are not good. They're not good there. So when the author, when Sandra went to visit him, it was only four days past the time that he had been taken in and he was still wearing the same clothes that he had been photographed in um, when the police had gotten him. No one in his family had brought him any clothes to change into and no one in his family would ever actually speak to him again. 
Now, when Sandra asked Vicente why he killed his family, he said, quote, I think it was hate and then greed. But he also said that he had concocted the perfect plan. (laughs) Maybe not, Vicente. I don't think so. And she asked, what about the cops? And he said, so what if they found us out? We're in Mexico, a corrupt country. The cops are only for decoration. And I feel like that statement right there kind of sums up the entire mentality that he had. And it's unfortunate because part of that statement has proven to be true in his lifetime. You know, there were so many times that that was accurate. And so it's not inaccurate, but it's just horrible. It's just horrible. Now, Vicente said that he knew that he was the most hated person in the world and that if he was on the outside looking in at him, you know, he would want to kill him too. And he knew that there was a lot of anger towards him. On Wednesday, May 26th, Sandra's article titled, quote, We Don't Think the Police Would Investigate came out. Now, people were torn about who to blame the most. Should they blame Vicente the most? Should they blame the cops for the corruption or the media for showcasing so much violence? And I do feel like we see this in cases committed by young people here in the States where that whole case for it's the media showing us so much violence gets brought up still to this day. Now, the police were the first to respond to the article and they were actually, you know, they talked about how many teens thought they could just commit crimes without consequence. And, you know, come on, cops. Like, it's... Do you not see how you are also a part of this? Right. And seeming to add to the idea that teens would commit crimes with impunity, a few days later, a student at Vicente's high school actually stabbed another student to death in the middle of the day on school grounds. This is the type of stuff I'm talking about. This is his school. Like this desensitization. That's what we're talking about here. Like this isn't just, oh, I saw someone, you know, use a gun on TV. This is like someone at my high school stabbed someone in broad daylight and they died. Now, Vicente and Uziel stood before the judge the day after they gave interviews and the judge decided they were guilty of premeditated homicide with, quote, brutal ferocity, which is fitting. Now, because Uziel was an adult, he faced the longest jail time. He could face up to 60 years. But because Vicente was a minor, he only received a five-year sentence. Which, yeah, yeah, that's a lot to take in there. That's a lot. You know, I think that that brings up a discussion about the ramifications of how in the United States, it's very much wishy-washy in terms of if someone gets prosecuted as an adult or a minor. Yes. And I don't think the wishy-washiness is good. I think that there should theoretically be rules. But then when this happens and here's where this like strict rule applies and this person gets five year sentence for this. Compared to 60 Maybe it should be situational. Due to like a seven month age difference, you know, like, wow. Yeah. So just to give some more statistics that are relevant to this about Juarez, between 2008 to 2010, more than 7,000 people were found murdered in the city. And that makes it the most violent city in all of Mexico. And about only 200 of those cases actually resulted 
in suspects being found. Like 200 out of 7,000. Yeah, 7,000 is a lot. A lot. Now, interestingly, the year Vicente was detained was one of the years with the least amounts of homicide, uh, which is just an interesting fact. Criminologists that worked with Vicente said that his neighborhood, school, and the city at large were to blame for his trigger. The DEA stated... Quote, there is no Mexican institution of law enforcement that the DEA can confide in, which I do feel like if the DEA is coming out and saying that, that's again an indicator of how bad the situation is. Yeah. Vicente actually started suffering from insomnia while detained at the school, and he slightly missed his little brother, CE. The psychologist who worked with him said that he was really incapable of establishing deep, positive interpersonal relationships. And so I think that's pretty evident. (laughs) Yes. So it was maybe like a surface level missing. Yeah. But, you know, and I don't think that it necessarily translated into remorse or anything like that. And Vicente did fall into a deep depression in the later part of 2004. He actually lost a lot of weight. He started getting like really dark bags under his eyes and he refused to interact with others in the school, choosing to spend most of his time in isolation. At the beginning of 2005, Vicente's rehab plan started and he actually started taking classes and he would see Eduardo on his way to classes. And Eduardo was succeeding in class and actually got all of the credits that he needed to graduate. And Eduardo also attended some classes for the community college. So he was actually kind of trying to get, you know, ahead and get some education. And actually, like, we talked about how he felt a lot of guilt and remorse. And it's pretty clear that he's working to better himself. Vicente was actually becoming more and more anxious and was starting to be unable to complete class assignments and, you know, doing all of those things that happen when you're in a deep depression where you're having a really tough time. But by May 2005, the structure of every day being regimented actually started really helping Vicente and he was starting to come out of his depression. And he actually celebrated his 18th birthday on October 27th, 2005. This is when he aged out of the school. And none of his relatives wanted anything to do with him. So he was sent to Cesaro Prison. Now, his prisoner statement and intake form marked him as an inmate with high criminal capacity and a maximum danger. So he was admitted to Ward 16. And in the book... She gives a lot of details about the culture of this particular prison as far as the different prison gangs and inmates having to pick loyalties with the, with different gangs based on the types of crimes they committed and also based on what parts of Juarez they were from. So if you're really interested in this case, like please read the book because it really goes into a lot of the detail I just didn't want to focus too long on this part of it. On December 17th, 2005, a massive riot between prisoner groups broke out. 40 people were wounded severely and six people were actually killed. An investigation would show that 13 prison guards had purposefully left cell doors open to instigate the riot. But guess what? Those guards did not receive any consequences for doing that. I'm shocked. Shocked. Right. Oh, 
And Ceresso Prison also had about 1,000 drug-addicted inmates. And this made it one of the most stable drug distribution markets in the city. And no one made any attempt to hide this. Guards were involved, police, visitors, inmates, everybody knew. Everybody knew. (sighs) Now, Vicente actually had found it easy to get along with others in his ward. And many of them had transferred from the school when they aged out as well. So there was kind of an established familiarity there. Connection, yeah. And at this point, he has kind of fallen into the routine of being first at school and then at prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is doing well for himself. Right. And in January of 2008, a prison psychologist interviewed him and noted that he showed no possibility of remorse or social integration. Now, along with his label of maximum danger, it was recommended by the psychologist that he would need to be transferred to a maximum security prison. But the psychologist's recommendation went ignored. At this time, he had less than a year left of his sentence. They actually sent him back to the school. There had been a new rule passed during this time that if someone committed a crime as a minor, they would serve their whole term with minors rather than with people who had committed crimes as adults. I feel like that is a very fascinating law. Yes. Like, I, I don't know how I to feel about that. that. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't... Uh, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of that. I guess it makes it, it makes sense if you are super young when you commit right but say but you're 16 17 18 16 17 you're right there on the cusp and then you're gonna serve your five-year sentence so you're gonna leave by the time you're 23 but you're still gonna be housed with 15 16 year olds right it seems odd it's interesting in july of 2008 he was escorted to the school which was housed in a new building after flood destroyed the old one and administrators of the school were worried that having vicente there would negatively influence young people who had a chance to reform and it really just seems like this was such a poor decision because yeah he was he was getting along with yep these people that are his age in the ward yes. and older. And he was he's, recommended to be in a maximum security prison. Right, exactly. Like he's he's not going to have remorse. He's not going to yeah. integrate back into society. This is a place where he's doing fine. You know, right. it, it just, it's so, so very odd and sad that this happened. And then they're like, let's just send you back to juvie. Like, instead of sending you to maximum security prison, we're just sending you back to juvie. Like, we're going the opposite way. (laughs) So it just, it seems a bit all over the map. And Vicente was also now addicted to cocaine and using marijuana often, which, again, was an extra concern for the admin. Yep. But there was not really anything they could do with this law passed. So while he was at the school, psychologists met with him weekly, and he actually was taking GED classes. He became interested in reading and would read about a book a week. And he was slated for release on May 21st, 2009, when he was only 21 years old. Still so young, you know? And he was feeling torn about being released because they're, you know, being free is exciting, but... It was also very scary for him because he was extremely notorious in the city. 
And in one of his meetings with a psychologist, he said that he wanted to get out of Juarez and that he was actually scared for his life. And many people assumed that as soon as he was released, he was going to be contacted by one of the cartels. So that worry about being free led Vicente to start experiencing insomnia again and displayed more erratic and unpredictable behavior. Now, Oscar Rodriguez, the school sports and spiritual leader, was the one adult who felt like with guidance, Vicente would be able to lead a full life. And he encouraged Vicente to do Bible studies with him twice a week. This impacted Vicente in a way that nothing seemed to have before. And he actually started really getting into spirituality. On one of his last days at the school, he chose to participate in the inmate talent show. Not much is known about what Vicente did between his release in May 2009 and August 24th, 2009, which August 24th is my birthday. So like I said, there are just some connections with this case. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like meant to be that I talked about this. And on that day, he went to a taco stand with another young man named Vital, who had also just come out from serving time. While they were sitting there eating tacos, two armed men approached them and opened fire. They shot 65 times. Vicente received 16 gunshot wounds and died instantly. No one investigated what had happened. The same day that Vicente was murdered, there were 10 other murders in Juarez. And no one claimed Vicente's body and he was buried alone. It's a lot. It's oddly poetic. Yes. That the police did not investigate what happened to right. him. And like, given the fact that he was so he was adamant so, that that was going to happen with the murder. And he was so notorious that the lack of investigation surprises me from that standpoint. Right. You know, if, if somebody is a criminal here in the States and they end up dead, I feel like that's such huge news and like people want to know everything about it, you know? Right. People are still talking about like Epstein. Yes, and exactly. Like exactly. And like, it's just interesting. It's like they, they were picking and choosing what to investigate and what to not. And there were, right. there were 11 murders that day. So, I kind of want to go into some thoughts about this case. And I do want to really, I really want to compliment the book because this book is a really good introductory read into, you know, drug cartels. And, you know, we we talk all the time, Cassie, about like how, you know, the Law & Order SVU episodes that involve drug cartels are the skip over ones, right? <laughs> like they're the ones that we don't really care to watch. And I, I enjoy the show Narcos on Netflix, but I feel like this book, book was a great way to introduce how the cartels really influence regular life yes. in Juarez. Like aside from being in that lifestyle, the repercussions of cartel violence are felt so deeply by people who live around that level of violence. And so I feel like this book is a really good read. And it's not very long. It's not very long. But it also covers a lot of like prison culture, sentencing, all kinds of stuff. It was a very, very good read. Um, I do want to talk about the idea of if he had lived somewhere else, would he have turned to violence with his family 
like how influential was the area and the violence that he grew up around? How influential was that for him to choose this as his number one option, you know? It is so hard to say. Right? Because that nature versus nurture debate. Yes. I don't know. Like, yes. as, a, as a parent, I joke all the time. Like, people will compliment my parenting or whatever because sure. I've got this awesome kid. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I didn't do it. It's not me. I'm not claiming responsibility right, right, right. because I fully believe that he... Is his own person. Is his own person. And he was going to be that person no matter right. what I did. That's, that's what I truly think. But... When we're talking about this kind of a thing, right? I do think that the nurture plays a really heavy role. And it yes. is something that we've seen, yes. not just in cases like this, but no. in other cases where, you know, there's a cycle of abuse that continues yes. or somebody is in these very traumatic situations and goes on to develop yeah. personality disorders and things like that. So, yeah. <sighs> It's really hard to say, but I, I do think that maybe nature gives our temperament yeah. and our personality, but right. nurture does change the way that personality right. develops, especially in your formative years. And I think that, you know, when all of these criminologists and psychologists and everybody is talking to him and they say, like, he's not capable of developing relationships, he's you know, he's got no remorse. He's never going to be reintroduced into society successfully. I feel like that would have been accurate for him no matter where he lived, because I feel like that's his personality disorders and his antisocial disorders and things. But I feel like the location heavily influenced this whole case because if nothing else, people felt like they could get away with murder, literally, you know? And in a lot of cases, they could. So it's just very, very interesting. And I did, we already kind of talked about the differences in, you know, the system here in the States versus in Mexico with aging out, with juvenile detention, with lesser sentences. But I would really be interested if any of our listeners had any thoughts on, you know, a five-year sentence versus a 60-year sentence due to a several-month age difference. And the whole, like, the law that was passed, if you commit a crime when you're a minor, you will serve your whole sentence with minors. It's very interesting to me. So yeah, I'm very interested in in that whole dynamic and that whole difference. But that was our case about Vicente. And yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it was not an easy one. That brings us to our self-care and prepare. So my self-care tip is to invest in an air purifier. I have been a all-year-long allergy sufferer for many years since I've lived in this area. And, you know, you take your allergy pills and then it's fine. But especially with being indoors so much more in the last few years... I was feeling a lot of just really cruddy, like runny nose and allergy stuff all the time. So I actually invested in a bedroom air purifier and it works wonders. And it is so gross, but gratifying when you replace the filter because like it just 
accumulates so much dust and pet hair and I can really feel a difference and I run it at night and it, it makes a great white noise. And so overall, like it really just is worth the investment. So let me ask this, like what, mm-hmm. how does this vary from like a humidifier? What's the so primary difference? There's no water in the air purifier. So you just plug it in and it has, mine is cylindrical and um, the bottom half, you can unwind it to replace the filter. And then you can run it on several settings. You can run it for a specific amount of hours. I pretty much run mine all the time, but it has like a calm setting and then a medium setting and a higher setting. Okay. Um, And so it just really, it's almost like it's vacuuming the air is what I would say. Like, you know, I'm very anti humidifier because people are like, if you don't clean it out, you're just breathing mold and people don't even know. So this sounds like something that I I would appreciate. I love the idea of a humidifier because I feel like, especially in the winter months, like everything just dries out. But the air purifier is so low maintenance. There's no cleaning required. And you really only have to replace the air filter. I think we replaced our first one after four or five months. And then the second one after like three months. So it just depends on, you know, if you have pets, it's going to be more often. Right. But they're super easy to find. You can find them, you know, at any store. You can find them on Amazon. You can find different sizes based on the room that you have. Um, But it really is worth the investment for sure. Very cool. And we'll link an example in our show notes, of course. And then my prepare tip is just, you know, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go with my prepare tip for this case because I was like, well, I don't know. I I feel like I can't really relate to anything that, you know, prepare, like don't, don't murder people. I don't know. And so I was (laughs) thinking about when Eduardo said, you know, if only someone had nudged me in the right direction, like I would have not been involved in this. And I feel like that voice, we have that voice for ourselves, you know, that like, I'm aware that I'm about to do something that's not great, or I'm about to make a mistake, or I'm about to do something that I will, re- that I will regret. And sometimes we push that voice away because we want to do whatever it is. And we don't want to think about the consequences and we don't want to think about repercussions. But if you really listen to that voice, I feel like it can save you some pain and some hurt. So just, you know, your gut feeling, the voice inside your head, whatever it is, you know what's right. And, you know, hopefully you do. (laughs) Like just, (laughs) just do, just listen to that part of you, you know, because it's probably protecting you in some way. And so that's it for our case of Vicente Leon. And we would love to hear your thoughts on this case. So please find us on all the social medias at Body Parts Pod. And Soakers, we'll leave it here for today. Tune. Oh, before we leave it here for today, can we do our latest Patreon shout out? Yes. We have a new patron. So thank you so much, Becky Hoganson, for supporting us on Yes, thank Patreon. you. We appreciate you. And if any of our listeners are a little bit more interested in Patreon, it's a membership site where you can support the podcast. You get access to ad-free content. You get 
early content, including, of course, the two episodes back-to-back if it's a two-parter. You get extra content, extra episodes. You get to come hang out with us at a virtual happy half hour. You get the bath and body parts bath bomb, all the fun things. So go check us out on patreon.com slash bath and body parts. And we we really, really love our patrons. Thank you so much. We do. Everything that goes into our Patreon just really goes into the production of the podcast. Yes. There's a lot of work that goes in on the back end in terms of editing. And poor Matthew is so gracious to (laughs) do all of that. And so we really do put everything back into the podcast. Yes. All right, Soakers, we're going to leave it here for today. So tune in with us next week to hear another tale of true crime. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. for tuning in soakers we just wanted to give you a heads up that we will not have a new episode next week we are taking the week off to spend the holiday with our friends families and loved ones but don't worry we'll be back the week after with another exciting tale of true crime for you have a wonderful holiday if you're celebrating and if not have a wonderful week we'll catch you next time